Welcome back to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode three and the Russians have just bombed Helsinki on the morning of 30th November 1939. Missing most of the vital infrastructure but hitting the residential area and a square in front of the main railway station as well as a hangar on Malmi airfield. 200 people died in the first few hours of this invasion. Most were civilians. The Finns were caught totally off guard. The anti-aircraft gunners managed to fire off a few shots, but by then Russian bombers had turned away and were miles off. As the planes disappeared to the east, air raid sirens began to wail a belated warning, which by then was a waste of time. However, after lunch, the planes were back. Fifteen Red Air Force bombers swept in for another raid soon after the all-clear had sounded in Helsinki. The streets were now choked with people clearing up after the morning attack. Fifty more civilians died, and at least 150 were wounded in the second bombing run. The Russians targeted other towns, including Vipuri, the harbour in Turku, and they took aim at the hydroelectric plant at Imatra, and then bombed a small gas mask factory at Leyte. The hydroelectric plant at Imatra was not the only target. The Russians bombed an important road between the northern shores of Lake Ladoga and Helsinki, north of the Mannerheim Line. While this was going on, the Red Army landed specialist commandos on the uninhabited islands of Sikskari, Lavansari, Sursari and Taitasari, without firing a shot. Back in Helsinki, the shock of the attack was visible on everyone's faces. Parts of the city were on fire. And it was through this maze of blackened buildings and corpses and craters in the roads that Field Marshal Gustav Mannerheim wound his way in his chauffeured car. The man who'd given his name to the defensive line had resigned. He didn't fit Finland's political scene in the run-up to this war. He was 72, and he had been tainted by the Finnish Civil War, where he'd led the White Army, the men who tried to protect the monarchy. He'd earned a terrible nickname, the Bloody Baron, for what happened after the Civil War formally ended. At least 80,000 Red Army sympathizers, including women and children, were herded into concentration camps in Finland, where 10,000 died from disease and hunger. The communists, who'd committed their own long list of atrocities during the Civil War, found themselves on the receiving end of a heavy dose of revenge. While there were other reasons for the high death rate in the camp, including influenza, Many Finns pointed an accusatory finger at Carl Gustav Mannerheim, blaming him for turning a blind eye to the abuse. Mannerheim had adopted a fairly simple technique to deal with the communist rebellion which had been backed by Moscow, and that was to execute the leaders and then put the workers back to work, ASAP. He hated Bolshevism. This made him an implacable enemy of the Soviet Union, similar in some ways to Winston Churchill. Around 3,000 communist rebels died at the old Tsarist fortress of Sumenlina, the largest white army concentration camp. They were shot, hanged, bayoneted and beaten to death, while Mannerheim did little. Some say he didn't know this was going on, but most inside the white army had a pretty good idea about what retribution was happening. Mannerheim was seen as an anti-communist fighter, however. He'd won an important victory over the Bolsheviks, and thus was awarded the German Iron Cross by Kaiser Wilhelm. Which is ironic, because Mannerheim had fought against Germany for the Russians during the First World War. He thus became the only person in history to fight against Germany and yet be awarded one of that country's most coveted decorations. As with other military leaders, his attempts at dabbling in politics were disastrous. Mannerheim supported the monarchy in Finland, something that put him at odds with the vast majority of Finns, 
and he was trounced in elections in July 1919 by the liberal nationalist Professor Carlo Juho Stalberg. The prof was a pioneer of republicanism in Finland and now became the country's first president. He drafted the first constitution and piloted an independent Finland into the choppy waters of world diplomacy between the wars. Mannerheim was not in favour of democracies and regarded the squabbling of political parties as an irritation to be avoided. He became the chairman of the Finnish Red Cross in 1920 but was accused of harbouring extreme right-wing views. The thuggish conservative movement called the Lapuans, headed up by Kurt Valenius, were indirectly tied to Mannerheim when he appeared to justify their bully-boy tactics. Mannerheim actually despised Hitler and the Nazis, but he was even more appalled by the communists. Between the wars, Mannerheim was a solitary and lonely figure. His wife, Anastasia Arapova, had divorced him in 1919, so he ended up living alone in his mansion with his servants surrounded by austere furniture, mounted animals he'd shot, weapons on the walls along with plaques. Some called it a museum. He was living inside a building that would turn into his museum after his death. In 1931, he was called back to politics to assist new president Svinofut as chairman of the Defence Council. This is where he began building the Mannerheim Line, but he resigned in 1937, tired out after years of haggling over budgets. Mannerheim, however, constantly tried to convince the Finnish government to negotiate and hand over the islands to Stalin in the period before the invasion. He was eventually referred to as the ghost at the banquet because of this, and finally Prime Minister Kayanda told colleagues he'd accept the Marshal's resignation. He couldn't take the negative attitude any longer. A national coalition party ruled Finland just before the outbreak of war, and members of this cabinet criticised Mannerheim for being too old, one who could not be trusted. This cut the veteran deeply, and he began negotiating his resignation on the very week that the Russians began to bomb Helsinki. So this key character of the war went from almost fired to being appointed as commander-in-chief of the Finnish forces on the day the Russians attacked. Even his most vocal critics knew that he was the only man who could lead the Finnish army in their hour of need. So Mannerheim drove up to government headquarters in the wake of this first air raid and withdrew his resignation. And by the end of the first day, the Finnish government had changed hands. Left-centre leader Vaino Tana of the Social Democrats had been huddled in a bunker most of the day arguing with Prime Minister Kayanda, a nationalist, and his foreign minister, Erko. Tanner worked fast. He convinced other members of parliament that Kayanda should go and then approached him after the government shifted its centre of operations to a small town called Kaihaijoki, east of Helsinki. It was either resign with honour or be dishonourably booted out of office. Both Kayanda and Erko resigned a bitter moment for men who'd led Finland so well in peace, relatively prosperous years, and now they've been cast out. Tanner took over the role of foreign minister and picked the president of the Bank of Finland, Risto Raiti, as prime minister. They were going to work on a political strategy underpinned by their military. They would negotiate for an end to fighting as quickly as possible, while presenting Joseph Stalin with a significant butcher's bill. Between Raiti, who spent hours with Mannerheim, and Tanner, who drove the diplomacy, these three men turned into a triumvirate that would run Finland in its hour of need. President Kallio, the nominal leader of the state, rubber-stamped their decisions, albeit with some reluctance at times. There was no time to waste. 
Finland's geography suited their initial plans. The Karelia Isthmus was the linchpin, so Mannerheim was concentrating his defences there. The only other area that offered an immediate threat was the 65-mile stretch just north of Lake Ladoga's shores. There were two good roads there. One started from inside Russia at Petra Zavotsk, and the other from Mamansk along the rocky coast of Lake Ladoga. Both roads converged near the small town of Kitela, and a few miles from there was Finland's crucial rail network. It was also a point where good roads led north and south. Mannerheim knew that the Russians were going to aim at these two areas, and he was right. This central zone near Kitela was the back door to the Isthmus, and could support a large army on the move. The Finns were ready for this backdoor trick. They'd been practicing war games in the preceding years for precisely this route. The strategy was even more interesting. They would let the large Soviet army move along these roads until they reached lines of defences that linked Lake Ladoga to Kitela and another lake called Siskirjavi. Then they'd pin down the Russians and hit their logistic routes now strung out back eastwards, their left flank up against Lake Ladoga and the right exposed to Finnish soldiers on skis. They would cut off the head of the Russian salient and then methodically destroy the Russian army north of Ladoga. The man ordered to carry out these orders was Major General Juho Hashkinen, who would lead the two infantry divisions and three battalions of border troops in the newly constituted 4th Corps. Mannerheim, though, had a big problem. Before the war, he had estimated that the Russians' 8th Army, based just south of the Ladoga Karelia front, would attack with three divisions. It turned out Moscow had extended a new railroad from the 8th Army's main supply base at Petrozavodsk up to the border near the Finnish town of Suajavi and had actually attacked with five divisions. These were backed up by a full brigade of armour, 3,000 soldiers and 40 tanks. By the evening of the 1st of December, the Russian tactics were becoming clearer to Mannerheim as he peered at his operational maps at his museum-like home. They'd aimed at the vulnerable road near Tolvajarvi, just north of Lake Ladoga, launching their attack with 20,000 men of the 139th Division under General Beljajev, joined by 45 tanks and 150 guns. Behind this powerful force was another, the 56th Division, which was to storm across Suajarvi, then turned southwest to take aim at the town of Kolai. Facing this army, 4,200 Finnish troops, none of them regulars, mostly border guards and civic guard reservists. Then, travelling along the north shore of Lake Ladoga, was the Russian 168th Division under General Bondarev, which aimed straight at Salmi, with the basic plan to advance to meet up with the 18th Division under General Kondrashev, who was attacking along the Uamai Road to the north. Another serious drain on Mannerheim's resources were the powerful thrusts by the Red Army into the forests in central and northern Finland. These were isolated moves by the Russians, but were a threat to his plans. In the far north at Petsamo, the Russian 104th Division had attacked from the air and sea, supported by naval gunfire and heavy coastal artillery close to Murmansk. The basic Russian plan here was to advance down the Finnish Arctic Highway and seize the Lapland capital, Rovaniemi in a few days. With the Red Army at a numerical advantage of 40 to 1 here, Stalin believed they'd roll over the defenders without much drama. Just to make sure, the Russians landed an additional two regiments of the 104th Division backing up their initial landings. What they didn't appear to realize is that the Finnish Arctic Highway was actually a small road 
and that they would have to negotiate a dangerous tundra for 300 miles before joining up with their southern forces. Mannerheim was not too perturbed by the Pitsamo invasion. South of this, two entire divisions focused their might on the small lap village of Sala, a two-pronged thrust by the 122nd and 88th Divisions, which were trying to march onwards to Kimajavi. The roads improved from there, and then the two divisions were planning to swing southwest towards Ravanyemi, which lay close to the edge of the Arctic Circle. This worried the Finns far more than the 104th Division assault on Petsamo, while another critical advance was also causing Mannerheim some grief. This was the 163rd Division's attack on Suomo Molsalmi, a tiny village that had the unfortunate distinction of lying on a direct route to the strategic Finnish town of Ulu on the Gulf of Botnia. 17,000 Red Army soldiers of the 163rd were bearing down on this sleepy hamlet, along with their brass bands and sacks of goodwill gifts they were going to try to use to bribe the rural Finns, cover them with trinket love, so to speak. The Russians also sent a convoy of lorries carrying leaflets and even a printing press, ever aware of the power of propaganda. The reason for all this lunacy was Soviet intelligence agents had been crossing the border for some time, and they detected that people in this region were left-wing in their local politics, and Stalin was hoodwinked. He and the planners believed these Finns would flip, liberated by the Soviets, so to speak. Mannerheim actually harbored his own doubts, and in the end, the Red Army swept through the village and made for the railway junction at Hrinsalmi. From this vantage point in the thin waste of Finland's centre, they'd head straight west to the point of Ulu, only 150 kilometres away. Then Finland would be split in two, like a frozen melon. At the same time, Russia's 54th Division was aiming at Kumo, just south of this central wasteline. A powerful force of 12,800 men, 35 tanks and over 100 pieces of artillery. Facing them was a ragtag force of 1,200 Finnish border guards and reservists. What hope did they have facing Major General Gusevsky's regular troops? Then, still further south, heading towards the Isthmus now, Russia's 155th Division launched a thrust at Liska, a dozen tanks, 40 guns, 6,500 men. Only two battalions of Finns faced this threat. At least they had guns. The problem was they only had four and these were pre-World War I obsolete devices. So as you can see, the Finns were indeed facing fists full of steel, heavily outnumbered. They had little chance of success. This invasion of Finland involved Russian forces launching attacks by land, sea, and air. One of the interesting facts about this war was that the Russian navy was pretty much a dim ghost of its former self by now. The Soviets had trashed their navy, turning it into a coastal force, whereas previously it had dabbled on the high seas. By now, it was 25 years behind the Royal Navy and the German Kriegsmarine. It didn't help that Stalin was totally incompetent when it came to the war at sea. He tried to force his Baltic fleet commanders to launch a submarine attack on Tarku Harbour. The admirals repeatedly pointed out, through the use of maps and aerial photographs, that the shallow approach and the reefs and the defences there were such that any submarine that fired a torpedo would probably be sunk. It was so shallow and exposed. The Finnish Navy was also a coastal defence force. 13,000 sailors, along with 12 PT boats, minesweepers, small shallow draft gunboats, four mini-submarines and then two larger ships. These were called cruisers but could also be called monitors, which are designed for coastal bombardment. Monitors are heavily armoured with a low profile, a large main gun, 
while cruisers are faster, more maneuverable, and equipped with advanced sensors and communications equipment. These two were armed with 8- and 4-inch guns, as well as Bofors anti-aircraft weapons. Named the Weinemonen and the Ilmarinen, they were to remain pretty much ass-bound for much of this sharp war. The Soviet ship Kirov hove into view near the coastal town of Hanko on the 1st of December, escorted by two large destroyers. Facing them were the Finnish coastal artillery, which regarded itself as an elite force. They were well drilled. The guns were old, but extremely powerful and accurate. One of the Russian destroyers was hit almost immediately, limping away with smoke pouring from the damage. The Finns then hit the Kirov in the stern, while the Russian ship missed the coastal batteries in its initial bombardment. The Kirov lost engine power and was then towed away. So the first battle of coastal forces here in the south was won by the Finns. More engagements were to follow, but that's for next episodes. Much of these first two or three days had seen the Russians' initial advances going according to plan, except for the coastal mishap at Hanko. By now, there were ten separate campaigns on the go, covering the entire length of eastern and southern Finland. It was along the Isthmus frontier on the 1st of December that General Meretskov's 120,000 men and 1,000 tanks were to make their most powerful thrust. He also had 600 guns which blazed away. Luckily, by now, the Finnish citizens had been moved out of their homes along this frontier zone. The Karelian families remain one of the most cherished heroes of this war for the Finns, stoic and hardy farmer types who had what was called sisu, courage, in chunks. Some of the peasants touched up their homes, even washing them before the Finnish soldiers burned them to the ground so the Russians would have no cover for midwinter. The peasants said they were only prepared to hand the Finnish army what they called gifts that looked sparkling and new before they were burnt. Another storyline for the coming propaganda campaign that Moscow would lose so catastrophically. In another village, an old man helped the soldiers burn his home, saying both his grandfather and his father had burned down their homes as they fought the Russians. He was just making sure the job was done properly. Once the families were gone, the soldiers went to work, booby-trapping as much as they could. For the Russians, who surged into this border village, everything that could move seemed to be attached to a bomb of some kind. Mines were left inside haystacks, detonators were attached to pots, cupboard doors were mined, devices were left under sleds, under dead chickens. The village wells were despoiled with dead animals and fecal matter. In the snow drifts between trees, the Finns set up terrifying pipe bombs, which were metal tubes stuffed with explosives. These went off at waist level as the Russian soldier tried to make his way through the deep snow, and the Red Army began to regret not having snowshoes. A Finn man called Soloranta figured out that the Russians could pick up these devices using their metal detectors, so he designed a wooden booby trap with explosives that blew off the tank tracks. The Russians then had to walk ahead of the tanks, prodding the snow with their sticks. Before the invasion, Stalin had figured out that the frozen lakes could be used as roads. That was until the Finns' special new weapon was discovered. They had strung hundreds of meters of ropes, partly filled with dynamite, under the ice. These shattered the ice as tanks approached, and then the tracked vehicles sank through the cracks, taking the crews to the watery graves. Russian tank commanders began avoiding the frozen lakes. This meant the mechanized approaches were even more limited, back to the roads, which is exactly what the Finns wanted. Remarkably, even by the standards of Finnish innovation, they began to draw sheets of plastic cellophane over frozen lakes so that these appeared unfrozen. The Red Army immediately became its own worst enemy. Thousands of vehicles began to cause a huge traffic backlog on the Russian side of the border. 
A similar thing happened recently in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Russian vehicles slid into the bogs, heavy snowstorms lashed the men and the machines, and when the Finns launched counterattacks, this caused even more traffic jams. This mechanized invasion was not so much blitzkrieg as botched krieg. Despite that, something was causing the Finns much terror. That was the Russian tanks that did make it over the border. There was a buffer zone of up to 30 miles deep between the frontier zone and the Mannerheim line, which lay east to west across the middle of the Karelian Isthmus. The Finns had 21,000 men here, broken into covering groups of a few thousand at a time, and designated by the letter of the name of their officer. Commanding of these troops was Chief of Staff Hugo Ostermann. There was a reserve unit held behind the front lines between lakes Sulajarvi and Valkajarvi, and Mannerheim wanted to draw the Russians out into the open area, then attack them with these covering groups. Ostermann was more circumspect and wary of the effect of the tanks. The Finns had never fought tanks before, and Ostermann wanted to move his troops behind the Mannerheim line, giving them a chance against these tanks. Because of their initial experience and fear, the Finnish first offensive skirmishes along this invasion front was spotty. Some defended stoutly, others balked. Those who fought well were based in Terijoki village, just a few miles from Leningrad on the Baltic Sea coast. The Russians made it into the village eventually, but were hit by four counter-attacks on the night of the 1st of December. The Finns retreated, blowing up a railway bridge, which slowed the Red Army invasion by 10 hours. It was on the evening of the first day that Mannerheim and Ostermann realized that their tactical blueprint may work. This was because reports were filtering in that the Red Army stopped its assault sometimes even when fired on by a single sniper. The Red Army's fear of booby traps meant it took hours to overcome a simple peasant burnt-out house, and now the Russians' mechanized units were backed up in miles-long traffic jams, ideal for the sort of raids that the Finns had been planning. This invasion has so many resonances when it comes to the war in Ukraine. The Russians made the same mistakes there as they tried to take Kiev in February 2022. There, Ukrainian soldiers used drones and quad bikes to do the same as the Finns had done with grenades and fast-moving men on skis. So, that was the end of day one. Next episode, we'll hear about a false alarm that led to Finland losing a great deal of territory. But coming for the Russians was a fierce winter storm and something that was invented during the Spanish Civil War, but perfected by the Finns. These were the Molotov cocktails, the name given to these weapons by the Finns. These weren't just bottles of fuel. These were containers of acid, nitroglycerine, kerosene, tar, and potassium, ignited not so much by a cloth stuffed in a bottle, but an ampule of sulfuric acid taped to the bottle's neck. The Finns had no anti-tank weapons, but they had something perhaps more terrifying, the Molotov cocktail. Please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com where you'll find a page dedicated to the series and links to the audio. I'll be using desmondlatham.blog for regular updates. Until next, goodbye.